welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 59 for May 2016. I'm your co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Seems like we just posted one of these, didn't we? <laughs> we did. Uh, yeah, funny thing about a monthly show, sometimes the schedules line up oddly, and uh, the shows, uh, yeah, they might be far apart or close together for uh, for us, but uh, hopefully they're reasonably spaced for the listeners. Yeah, and sometimes it makes some of the news items a little bit stale, but that's okay. I think they'll forgive us <laughs> since we're reporting yes, we're... on a 40-year-old computer company. <laughs> that's right. And as we always say, despite all the news on our show, we are not a news show. That's right. <laughs> we just uh, we, we talk about general subjects of interest that are Apple II related, sometimes vaguely. Yeah. So speaking of that, uh, this month, oh, I, I guess I should ask, how are you, Quinn? Oh, I'm excellent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, not uh, again, since we're kind of uh, compressed with our last recording, not much uh, to talk about uh, retro computing wise, but uh, uh, yeah, getting ready for KFest. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so this month is a little bit special. Um, we are incredibly lazy here at Open Apple. We will take any opportunity to get out of doing any work. And this month, Kevin Savitz mm. has been our, uh, our patsy, our un- unknowing victim. And, uh, we are using an interview or two that he did for, uh, that amazing Atari interview show that he does over at Atari Age, Boo Atari. And, uh, well, uh, did you know anything about these, Quinn, or, or are we just going to lead into it? Uh, not a lot, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're, we're gonna pretend that that we know all about uh, what's what's about to be in these interviews. But uh, yeah, Kevin, uh, let us know he had these interviews that were uh, Apple centric. Uh, Amy Kefever and Lori Hopping of Microzine, and uh, he offered them to uh, run them on Open Apple since they weren't entirely uh, Atari, Boo Atari related. So uh, yay, Kevin Savitz, and uh, yeah, we'll present those, I guess, without further comment. Hi, I'm Bob Bishop, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. I was an English lit major in college, and I knew I wanted to be in children's publishing, so I came to New York, and um, Scholastic was my second job, and I started off in the uh, book club division, where, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, getting those little cheapy paperback books in your classroom. Um, which I loved as a kid, and I got to work oh, yeah, there. Oh, I love that too, sure. I know. <laughs> it was like the best part of the month was when the Scholastic Books came. And um, <laughs> so I just sort of worked my way through a couple of different divisions at Scholastic, and then um, I was in the Classroom Magazine division uh, working on a magazine for fifth-grade kids, and Scholastic recognized that um, computers were coming into the classroom, and so they needed to have a presence there. And so they started a whole new division. And uh, very quickly after they started up, they posted um, some jobs, and I applied, and I was completely thrilled to be part of it. So you were uh, editor of Microzine? Um, I joined as an associate editor. Um, the guy that was my boss was a part of the very first team. And um, after I had worked for him, I think for about a year, I think it was about a year, I got he went on to other projects within the division, and then they bumped me up to editor. Was Microzine marketed 
directly to schools? I mean, who, who was the who was supposed to be buying microzine? Was it the schools? Was it parents? It was the schools, and it was whoever was making the buying decision. Usually, it was often a sort of a a, a central person for a school district or something. Um, and so, our marketing people were going directly to the schools, and we published. Um, Guides for the teachers, teaching you know documentation and stuff for the teachers, and uh, and then material for the parents. But it was really the schools that were were our customers. And did you have a sense of if a school would they buy one copy? Were they buying ten copies? Were they buying one for the whole lab? And well, that 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 turned out to be an interesting uh, marketing event. Um, we started publishing it as as a magazine, which meant that you would buy a subscription and you would get five issues during the course of a school year. So they did that initially. Um, then it turned out that they could also make additional monies by selling uh, individual back issues. Um, and unfortunately, very quickly on, we heard from teachers, they said, oh, we absolutely adore Microzine. And then the salesperson would say, great, so we can sign you up for another year. And they said, we don't need to because we've got a whole new bunch of kids and these are great and they're holding up. And uh, so we have everything we need. And we thought, well, gee, that isn't what we want to hear. So they marketed it as a library on a disc, meaning you are always building your library. And and as it turned out, you know, certain elements were the same issue to issue. There's always a twist to plot. But the other three programs were always different. And since the goal was to have this be an, an initial introduction to kids to the, you know, what the computer can do and all the different utilities and things that it can do, um, we were able to keep tapping into different uh curriculum areas, you know, science or history and and different things that the computer could do. You know, very quickly did a database and very quickly did um, oh, accounting and a little word processor and stuff. But after that, it was more hitting different areas of the curriculum so the teachers could see the value in continuing to subscribe. So it um, sort of to go back, what you uh, asked me a little bit ago was, uh, I think it was used both in computer labs and in individual classrooms. But were you about to ask me how did we decide what the content was? Yeah, how did you decide what the curriculum was? It, were you guys, I mean, Scholastic, I'm sure, knows a little bit about <laughs> about making curriculum, but what, what were, was this was in, in uh, were you working with, with outside teachers or were you making it up as you went along or how was that? Well, we, we had a really good, you know, Scholastic's a big company, and so we had a lot of resources and the marketing division was um, full on and they, and the salespeople knew what the different curriculums were going to be. Sort of nationwide, there's a lot of, you know, consistency in, in what's taught in fifth grade or fourth grade or whatever. And so we knew that for the Twisted Plots, we just had to get the reading level right and and topics that the kids would find intriguing. And, um, and then after that, it was, um, it sort of look, I would look over the year and try to have a good balance so that we, you know, had a good mix of science and math and history and sort of split it up between the issues so that one wasn't heavily weighted, you know, in one area or another. So um, 
luckily with the editors that were there on staff and the programmers who were, you know, hugely instrumental in all of this, there was never a lack of ideas. And um, sometimes the, the hard thing was, you know, what do we leave out? Because there are all these things that we wanted to do, and we can only do about 20 programs a year. And they also, so, you know, we were constrained by um, the, the limits of the machine and, you know, how much we could fit on a disc and that kind of thing. Do you know how many subscribers you had? I mean, at average or at peak or just any sort of oh, idea? Goodness. I'm sure I knew at one point. Um, I I honestly don't know. I'd have to go back and I'd have to find that out for you. We had a lot. Um, yeah. There was I, I sort of did myself then. I had decided at one point that I wanted right. to um, have every kid get a personal response. And, and it was certainly easy enough for the kids that just wrote me out of the blue. But then we started doing these little monitor mysteries where they could write in and get a little certificate if they completed it. And I always tried to put in a little additional note. So it, it was fine because I absolutely adored my job and I loved everybody I worked with. But there were a couple of years there where I was working seven days a week because I would come in on Saturday and Sunday and, and do nothing but answer letters. Wow. And, um, yeah, and even then and after a while we hired someone to sort of generate a form letter, but then I, we would always put personal notes on the bottom to the kids. And I, I just remember there were a lot of letters. So, um, I, that's a, I'm embarrassed that I don't know the answer to that, but um, uh, as I said, no, that's fine. something I could probably find out for you. If, if you can, it would be interesting to find out. Yeah. But yeah. I was just curious if it was hundreds or thousands of subscribers. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely um, thousands. I just I just don't know how many. It, yeah. it was definitely in the thousands because it was um, it was making money for us for a while, so that was great. Well, that, you led me right into another question. I, I was going to ask uh, what what feedback you got. It sounds like you got a lot of it. Can you tell me more about about that? We got a lot of, um, I, I think I would have to say, almost without exception, all the, all the feedback from the kids was was overwhelmingly positive. And they would ask for stuff, and they would ask, you know, why can't you do this, or why can't you do something about that? Um, you know, they wanted twist the plus about dinosaurs, and they wanted, you know, outer space and all that kind of stuff. Um, some of the teachers were more critical, which you would expect, and we always tried to listen to that. And when it came time to do um, uh, an advisory board, I tried really hard to fill it with people that had made really f- critical but thoughtful comments because I thought they could help us um, best uh, to you know make it better. Um, but the kids loved the monitor mink, uh, the the yeah, listening the monitor mysteries a lot. They liked the twister plots a lot, um, and anything that sort of smacked of a video game, of course, was really popular. We did a, a little program on light refraction, and we sort of took a play off of the game Pong, which um, I'm sure you're too young to remember, but I remember it, and it was um, it was this great game with a little ball bouncing back and forth, and we did it so that you would move um, a little device that would um, sort of, it was light coming from a flashlight, and if you move the little barrier correctly, you could refract it back to hit a target. So that was pretty fun because they thought they were, well, they were playing a game, but there were also some good principles behind it. So that kind of stuff was usually a hit. Um. Well, tell me about the 
Can you give me some examples of the critical feedback from teachers? What were they upset about? Oh, boy. This was so long ago. I'm trying to remember now. Um, a lot of times it was that the programs didn't do enough, that they weren't powerful enough. And, you know, it's. I'm sure it sounded lame to them, but it was just a factor that, you know, we had 64K or 128K. It was really little back then. And there really is only so much you can do, especially when you've got programs that are um, have a lot of graphics and everything was so primitive back then. It took enormous amounts of space. And so we had to be careful and try to get in as much information, but also keep the kids engaged. So there was that. Um, they said, you know, this, this was kind of a puny program. It's like, uh, we're really doing the best we can with the limits of the machine. Um, let's see. So there was that. Uh, I think that some of them felt that it wasn't um, scholarly enough, that a lot of it was was sort of too much fun. And the earlier twist of plots were were absolutely, you know, just pure fiction. And after a few years, um, we got a couple of fabulous writers who were science writers as well as good um, fiction writers, and they would start to do things that um, the way that you move through the twist of plot was to uh, read, you know, comprehend what you were reading, answer some scientific questions, make some good guesses. So um, this woman whose name I suggested to you, Lori Hopping, um, wrote one called Escape from Antcatraz, and you learned a lot about ants and their uh, biology and, you know, social cultures and everything to get through the story. So so that was one response we did in in reaction to feedback from teachers. So was there a was there a, a killer app in Microzine? Like, the, what was the thing that you came out with that everyone was just like, "Yes, this is this is awesome." You know, what what was your Oregon Trail? I guess. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. um, I don't think we had one. Um, we had. The, the twist of plots were hugely popular with the teachers as well, um, I think, because they could see the value in the kids. It also took them a while to complete. So I think the teachers felt that if it's taking them this long to get through then, and they're engaged, um, that's good. And they saw that as a positive. Um, God, you know, Scholastic Software had some real rock star standalone things like, um, oh, my goodness, my friend programmed one it was about math ah it'll come to me um there was there was a math thing that was just a knockout and bank street writer was great um point of view was great but those are all like not microzine um i didn't realize you guys were bank street writer i thought that was protobum it was protobum but they scholastic was affiliated with it in the early years so there, there was some definite connection, and they, I think they published it in certain parts. And um, I would have to go back again and find out what the exact legal uh, arrangement was. But it was sort of like Scholastic published the U.S. edition of Harry Potter. So, yes, it's J.K. Rowling, obviously, and, and her publisher, but Scholastic had the U.S. rights. And we had, we had some affiliation with Bank Street Writer that was, of course, you know, hugely popular. Um, and then, and then we went on to success with writing, which was, you know, exclusively scholastic. So, 
you know, it all sort of evolved over a couple of years. Um, but but I think it was really the Twister plots that were just, you know, the most popular. I, I wouldn't say that Microsine had a standalone Oregon Trail. <laughs> was Steve Gass the man you were mentioning before who, who started off as editor before you came in? Uh, no, that was Jeff Siegel. Steve Gass was um, in a more... Um, executive managerial area. He was absolutely the f- the first wave, and I was only there for a little while before he went on. But he was he was part of that first team for sure. Okay, I, there was a name that I saw I had, had in my notes, and I thought I'd might as well find out uh-huh. where where it went. I, and I gotta say, I love on the the twisted plots at, le- at least some of them that I've seen. Um, when you start it off, it's just like you want to play as a boy or a girl. Like, that's awesome. There's <laughs> yeah. something awesome about that. Um, well, that also helped with the pronouns, too. <laughs> when, <laughs> but I re- actually, that's so funny. I remember dem- demoing that, but there was one, um, oh, my God, it might have been Pirates of the Soft Seas or something, but you had to answer that, and then you got to type in your name, and I was sort of horsing around, and Jeff actually was with me there at that demo and so I typed in that I was a boy and then I typed in that my name was Sue and I looked over at Jeff and he's like oh my god a boy named Sue and it was like so corny but you know the audience thought it was funny I thought it was hilarious so <laughs> but you know tried to make it fun for the kids you know that they could fool around with it a little bit and still get their work done right <laughs> so <laughs> well I had read something about the the, the choose your own adventure books that when they come out, they, they learned early on that right. that um, a, a a girl would read a book with a boy protagonist, but a boy wouldn't read a book with a girl protagonist. So, but on the I believe platform, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, on the computer platform, you could you could play it any way you wanted to. So, so. Exactly. Um, and right, the the, the about- other thing too with those twist plots at the beginning was another change that we made was. Um, uh, in the beginning, you could sort of there were there were multiple endings, and um, as you can imagine, you know, it's kind of complicated to to structure that and map it out so that all of the stories make sense. But um, we we decided, you know, pretty quickly that it really made, especially when you're you know introducing the curriculum and stuff, um, you want them to succeed by making you know the correct science decisions or the correct decisions based on what they've read. So we we tried to have lots of branches, but we tried to have basically one ending. So that's another reason why they got a lot longer. We wanted to make it more challenging. So I know you were responsible for a lot of content in there besides the, the twist of plots that were articles mm-hmm. and, and things. Um, can you tell me a little bit about creating that stuff? Sure. Um some of it, uh, again, there was there was a lot of input from lots of folks. We um, we originally worked with a group out in Minnesota, a team of developers, and they were fabulous. And they had lots of ideas. Um, but then once the editors sort of got their hands on it, um, lots of people were suggesting ideas and coming up with things. And um, so we would, 
I would try to sketch out for the year, you know, the curriculum areas, then we would try to find ideas that we could make fit into those slots. And, you know, how how can you take the idea of uh, light refraction and get science, but then how can you make it fun? And um, so, so, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, just a lot of freewheeling ideas and a lot of late nights and... Um, and then some of the editors would, would say, I want this to be entirely mine, and I'm going to go off and, and create this whole thing and come back and run it by you. So one of them was, um, uh, it was almost like a Rube Goldberg device where you had to reach, go from one side of the screen to the other, but you had to know a sequence of events. And, you know, if you press the toaster down, the toaster flies up and the bird is flying over right at the, that same moment, and the bird picks up the toast and drags, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it was, uh, you know, just sort of piling ideas in there. And some people would take ownership of it and go off and develop it, and then we might tweak it. Um, and then a lot of times the graphic artists would come up with fabulous ideas, too. And um, this one woman uh, was sort of, Loretta Jones was kind of a pioneer back in the day for um, these graphics and realized that, and this shows you how primitive it was, the graphics would come up and they would be essentially drawn on the screen in, in in the same sequence that the artist created it. And she realized that she could use that to her advantage, so when they did a twisted plot called Fossils Alive, um, it's it came up as a dinosaur skeleton, but then it sort of came to life based on the order in which she drew the skin and the features of the dinosaur. So it looked like it was sort of emerging. And that was just taking taking advantage of what the technology was at the time. But it's basically what games and what things we thought were fun that we could say, well, can we hang a math hat on this somehow? <laughs> because then we could do this um, with coins or something. And, um, and, and we, you know, we're... we're we're all obviously all you know playing games on our own and um, coming in and playing games from competitors and stuff and just really sort of getting loosened up for the day and getting all excited about doing stuff that we really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it was a good it was a good time in my life too my career. It was a really fun time. It was a very very uh, lively group there. That's great. Awesome. So Microzine was uh, supposed to be from grades four to six, and then at some yep. point you you guys came out with Microzine Junior, which I believe was kindergarten through fourth. Yeah, um, I thought that, that was a little bit too wide a range, but you know that's that's a marketing decision. Mm. I I would have loved to have pulled it down to K one two, um, or maybe one two three. I just for what the kids are able to do. You know, it, it was awfully wide range, but but it was fun because you know we got to try different things and and again step back on those twisted plots and get the reading level down and the number of decisions down and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the what got me into this is I, I had read something in an old magazine saying that there was microzine for the Atari and it seems like like some clarification from you either it never came out for the Atari or it was only out for a little while than when you guys decided Apple's... I think it was just one issue, quite frankly. I think it was just one issue. Um, And it was this 
that crazy parallelogram box, I don't or rhombus shaped box. I don't know if you ever saw that. Um I've seen Dexter which was Yeah, quickly discarded. The box that wouldn't fit on any shelf. Um that there was a lot of feedback on that, you can imagine. The teacher, what the hell am I supposed to do with this box? I can't <laughs> I can't put it on a shelf, it flies off. Um, I think it came out for for one issue on the Atari. It was like um, they had an interview with the uh, older brother from ET and um, something. And, and that was also that idea was quickly discarded because boy, that gets out of date before it's even published. You know, the kids have long moved on by the time that comes out. Um, yeah. So I'm. So, I was so sorry. You know, you said you're doing this podcast for Atari, and it's like I don't have that much to offer you. I'm afraid. Well, it's well. I'm throwing. I'm doing throwing doing a favor for my Apple brother, and it's okay. We're all we're all sixty five okay. friends in sixty five oh two. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, you said it was uh, stuff went out of date. What was the, what was the lead time on on production? Uh that was that was one of the hardest things. Um. Well, let's see. We did five issues a year. We were at least two months, at least two months. It was usually more like four was safer because, you know, you had to create this stuff, but then you had to test it um, rigorously because, you know, this stuff's going into the schools, and especially at the beginning, um, teachers had to be convinced that they wanted this and needed it, and they were so certain that it was going to be a problem and it was going to be buggy and, we we just decided that we were going to create something that one the kids could totally use on their own. So the documentation was was pretty light, you know, because there's a lot of documentation built into the actual programs, um, which they could get just by pressing a question mark, and you'd get a help screen of whatever you're doing at that moment. But um, but we also had to test it rigorously, and we hired a lot of local kids, uh, high school kids. Uh, to come in and bang on those on those programs, and they were triumphant when they could make it crash. And of course, we you know we insisted that they write a very detailed report on what the heck did you do to make this crash, and then we would take it back to our offices, try to recreate it, and then we would go back to the programmers and um, and work on that. So that that probably took the longest, and then of course you need the time to um, produce these things. And produce these discs and get them packaged. So, um, if I'm remembering correctly, there were some times where we skated pretty close to the edge, and it was two two months lead time. It was more like four was better because that meant that you know you weren't having hysterics to get it done. But you know, five discs during the school year is a lot, and that meant that you were always had something in different stages of production. We had. I had a big wall in my office, and um, we had the status of every program. It was like a war board or something where where was each piece? You know, was it with the developer? Is it with the programmer? Is it with this editor? Is it in testing? So we could keep it moving through. Some of the microzine features were later compiled into themed bundles. For example, Haunted House and Mystery Pinecrest Manor were reissued as Tales of Mystery. Um, Do you know if many of those bundles were released, and and was there any reason other than than marketing and have another thing to sell, or? Well, that's why. Um, It was um, a way to reach another market so that if a teacher, 
that was almost more too for um, the labs when if the kids didn't have a lot of time and they could come in and pick up sort of a twofer. And so we tried to bundle them in subject areas or interest areas that, you know, if a kid likes this mystery, maybe they want to just do two mysteries for the for the afternoon or something. It, it was the marketing. It was a way to take the stuff. It was very expensive to produce the stuff um, and how to get the most bang out of it, all of this effort and all of these months of, you know, this huge team of people to see if we could bundle it and, and sell it just in a different way and maybe increase the market a little bit. So uh, some of the later, going back to Twisted Plot for just a minute, uh, the later Twisted Plot mm-hmm. stories moved from a, a choose-your-own-adventure format to more of a, te- a computer text adventure format with players. Exactly. Um, what right. part did that change? Well, um, I guess it was more of an editorial thing. We just felt like, well, it was two things. One is an editorial thing. You feel like if you're telling a story, you're telling a story, not multiple stories. It just felt if you had five uh, legitimate endings to a story that maybe the story was weaker than, um, you know, from a plot point of view, than one story that was moving ahead to, to one outcome. And the other thing was, you know, adding these curriculum aspects. If you're trying to have the kids learn something, remember something, make some good guesses based on what they've read, um, you're you're kind of directing them, in a way, to the ending. And so when we went from that multiple ending format, and it happened pretty quickly, um, to the one ending, they got a lot longer and more complex so that the kids would feel that they had accomplished something by the time they got all the way through it and that and that it was worth going back and and uh making a couple of attempts to get it right. So you mentioned earlier um you play some of the games and things from the competition and I'm curious about what from the uh, what from other sources was your inspiration? What things did you borrow or steal from? Oh, what, what way did you well, find it different from the Living Brand? Yeah, there was, um, well, my husband and I, we were dating at that point, but he was he was um, a graphic uh, designer at Scholastic. Um, he and I were complete fans of text adventures and um, used to play those a lot. And, of course, there was no imagery on those. It was all text. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of, I liked the idea of that, and of course we've been doing twisted plots where full screen graphics would come up. But then we did a couple where um, you'd have a much more primitive graphic, but it would be the top half of the screen, and then you'd have a lengthy caption underneath. So that was, in a way, sort of blending the two ideas. You know, where you could move from room to room, and the text would change accordingly, and the challenges would change accordingly. So mm-hmm. that was just one sort of small subset of the Twisted Plus. I was also, um, we're huge fans of Load Runner, and uh, so the <laughs> um, complete obsession with that, and uh, I'm trying to think which one that, that sort of prompted. There was Load Runner, and, um, oh, Tetris was, a big one and we we're trying to we didn't really figure that one out we we're trying to figure out how could we do spatial relations and and shapes and things like that um that that was more in a microzine junior thing where they were playing with shapes and things and you know of course we did a much more elementary 
Um, it, it wasn't like falling dead. It wasn't like a video game thing, but we got the idea of, well, let's do something with shapes and colors that they could do. Um, a lot of it was just, you know, you sort of come in and you just sort of play a game for 30 minutes and then, then you feel like you're ready to go to work. So um, we would do stuff like that and uh, try to have our bosses understand. We're actually working. Um, it's research. Well, yeah. <laughs> But it, it was it was more to just sort of get warmed up and into it, you know. It's um, I think the thing that would have been a killer is if we'd gotten bored um, at, at that at that whole idea. You know, if you're getting bored, you're not going to come up with anything fun for the kids. So um, so it was, it was more like that, you know. Just sort of I, I was um, I, I guess it was the text adventures that I was thinking of when I mentioned that to you. That I was just trying to think of how I can combine a lot of text on the screen, you know, from a kid's point of view, a lot of text, um, and a little minimal graphic that sort of keeps them intrigued and moving from from point to point. What haven't I asked you yet that I should have? Uh-huh. About, about developing it or... Um, about the whole experience, about any of it. About the whole experience. I, I think that you have um, a story that you haven't told me. I well, I wish that it had been, or we had figured out, or I had figured out a, a way to make it less expensive to produce because I think it was such a great idea, and I don't, and we didn't run out of ideas for programs. So I wish. I wish there were a way that we could have kept advancing with the software and, and the machines and everything and um, to keep it going because I, I, I think it was um, it was great for its time and I, I wish it could have continued. I, God, the developers, when we, when we went from the, you're going to laugh at this, when we went from the Apple II Plus to the 2C, Mm-hmm. Those guys were ecstatic, and I remember because there was so much more we could do. I mean, there was all this energy, and I, I remember one guy saying, "You know, that Apple II Plus is a Ford, and this two C is a Ferrari." You know, he was like so excited about that, and and so um, I, I wish we could have kept it going to you know what what's going on now. You know, I, my kids have. You know, they sort of look back on what we did and they sort of roll their eyes and go, like, really? And I said, you don't understand. <laughs> back in the day, this was really cool. And uh, your mother was at the forefront of this stuff. You know, we were all these great people and we really felt like we were making this big difference in the schools and um, having the teachers welcome it and the parents maybe not so alarmed and the, have the kids engaged. So um, the other thing that was that was nice about that um that I don't think I talked about was um, we did a lot of school visits where we took um, software and development into the schools and um, I was paired up an editor with one of the programmers and they they went out as a team and I think that benefited the product a lot because the programmers had this incredible skill. They were so brilliant at what they did but to see it in use with with not someone as skilled as they were, um, a ten year old kid or an eight year old kid, and to see what they couldn't couldn't do was a real eye opener for them. And I think the product benefited because I think they came back um, with a better understanding of who their actual audience. I mean, the kids weren't our customers, but they were our audience. 
So we wanted this to be for them, and um, and of course the editors got a big snootful of what was and wasn't working as far as how the program was designed, you know, something that seems so clear to you. And then you go and you watch somebody else try to understand your directions on the screen or something, and they're not getting it. It's um, That was important, too. So I'm kind of all over the place here. Um, I, I, I guess um, I wish that there was something like this that came out periodically for kids in schools. I, I just think it would be really fun. The, the, the trouble is that, you know, things change so quickly now, and the technology changes so fast that I'm not sure that um, a dev- you know publishing company would be able to keep up with it. Yeah. yeah it's going to be now an, an iPad app that's good for a few months, and that would be, I don't know. Yeah. Huh. And then it's gone. And and you you just invest enormous resources in terms of money and time and people to to get something good, you know. And um, yeah. if you can't sell it for very long, that's... Um, you're not going to be able to do it. So, right. Anyway. So, how, why did Microzine come to an end? Uh, I think that the market was—it just wasn't making enough money. Quite frankly, um, people. It, I think the market got a little bit saturated, and it just got too expensive. And and Scholastic software was um in full swing then and I think that they wanted to devote more time to different products and one off products mm-hmm. which which would you know stay for a couple of years and it was it was it was absolutely I think one of the more um expensive items to produce so I think they felt that th- that we'd had a good run and it was it was time for them to move on yeah, it did have a good run. It was nine years or almost nine years. I know, I know. We're proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm still in touch with a lot of these folks, you know, and um, a lot of these authors and things. You know, people who who write for kids, you know, they they never go away. They're always doing stuff, and they're always <laughs> on to the next thing. And you know, this one woman, Lori Hopping, is is now designing. Um, ESL games, you know, she's living in Michigan and just doing incredible stuff and designing stuff for adults and kids because she's a game designer. And just, you know, to and she worked on, I think it was Science World, Scholastic, that magazine, which was a great magazine, and uh, sort of took all those skills and just took it to the next next event. Nice. Well, I hope to uh, talk with her soon. Um, yeah, she's she's fascinating. She's a good person. So I just got back a couple of weeks ago from Kansas Fest, which is an annual conference of Apple II devotees. And mm-hmm. there were 70 Neat. people there. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, people there, you know, hacking on Apple II. I just want you to know that people, like, remember Microzine and talk fondly of it. And, um, oh, you know, that's some, so nice to hear. Um, that's really well, lovely to hear. I, I was reaching out to Jeff Siegel, and he he was he's wrapped up in a bunch of stuff, and he couldn't talk to you. And he, but he commented on that. He said, that's, "It's so incredibly great to hear that something that we worked on so hard and cared a lot about that that people liked it and remembered it." So that's really so nice. I'd like to ask you um, if you could send a message to those grown-ups who were kids using Microzine back in the day and you can send them a message right now, um, what would you tell them? Oh, um, 
that I hope that they, they're still really excited about trying new things, whether it's on the computer or anywhere else, that I hope they still have all that energy and enthusiasm that makes them actually pick up a pencil and write to somebody who's working on it because we get as excited about it as they do. So I just hope the energy and excitement's still there. I think that's all I have. Thank you, Amy. Okay, well, that's great. I hope it was helpful. It was lovely to talk to you. Actually, before we start, I just wanted to show you from my archives. Can you see? I can, yeah. My Cuisine Junior. Nice. There's a My Cuisine. These are some of the ones that I wrote. I have a couple that I wrote that I I no longer have, the floppy disks. Whether they're good or not, I have no idea. But these are still shrink-wrapped. So I just put them in the archive. And you uh, reminded me I still had them. So. Sweet. I know a guy who's, because uh, um, those things were copy protected, and so yeah. some of them are out there now, and some of them are not. And I, I know a guy who like goes in there and like breaks the copy protection on things like Microzine and, and makes them available. Cause, uh, yeah, I found, I found Escape from Ancatrace. I found an emulator, you know, and I found it online. I, I, you know, I thought it was great. I think it's cool, because, I mean, nobody's selling it. Nobody can use them anymore. So. Right. And he, you know, getting them out there is a thrill for somebody who's, you know, participating in the creative process anyway. <laughs> can't, can't talk for the business end. <laughs> um, how'd you, so how'd you get started at Scholastic? Well, I started out on a, just fresh out of college, a new startup magazine called Electronic Learning. Very, very first uh, magazine there about when PCs first came out. So this was 1982. Mm-hmm. And so classrooms and schools were just getting their very first PCs. We had TRS-80s. We had... Um, I, you know, that was the main machine, actually. We had the Radio Shack was kind of dominating for that short period of time. And I had never seen a PC before. And they put me on the staff of this as a gopher, as a reporter, as an editorial assistant um, for the summer. And I had to learn computers 101 from scratch. I was a liberal arts uh, major, uh, English and French literature. So this was um, not, not, not uh, you know, not... Uh, completely unhappy with math. I like math a lot, but I had not had no experience with computers. So that led to the job with teaching and computers, another spin-off magazine for teachers where I learned basic programming. And that that was back in the day when you wrote basic programs, you typed them and then you had to convert them for all the different machines and then you printed them in the magazine and teachers would type, you know, laboriously type letter for letter and hope they got all the semicolons in place because, my goodness, if you missed a semicolon, <laughs> the program didn't work. And so I, you know, I wrote for, there was like a one or two year period before the software came out, before the software really blossomed. And um, teachers were just uh, cr- clamoring for um, material and programs. So basic programming gave way to uh, uh you know, uh, you know, program on floppy disks, right? So everybody started doing floppy disks, and so Scholastic started a software division. I think it was the mid '80s. Um, I could be corrected on that. Amy would know better because she ended up heading the editorial there. Um, and they tapped me because nobody knew how to do this stuff. Nobody knew computers. Nobody understood user response. Nobody understood, you know, that your your viewer is a character. You know, um, and so they hired a lot of writers to do these who, you know, we were all pi- sort of pioneering and struggling through this new medium. Um, but because I had done a lot of choose-your-own-adventure kind of stuff and, you know, the old books and, the, you know, understood how the basic programming logic worked and understood this, you know, the if-then loops and the, you know, conditional clauses, um, I went to town with it. I loved it. I loved my very first video game script that I wrote, this Escape from Ancatraz launched me in this whole new direction, whole new career, whole new way of thinking of story, 
uh, relating to the user, having a dialogue with the user, anticipating what they're going to do. Um, really, really some of the most difficult kind of writing to do. Um, and for me, that was fun and a challenge. So I wrote, um, you know, in the period when Microzine was around, um, gosh, I think it uh, lasted, I don't know, four or five years. Um, you know, it was a sweet spot where you could be a writer on a video game, and they would hire the writers first, and then the and then the artists, and then the coders, and that all got flopped around when the graphics took over, and we went into the CD-ROM era. And so, um, for Microzine, the way it worked is, uh, no, you know, there was no, there were no protocols. There was nobody knew how to do this. Nobody, there was no best practices. Um, people were doing it all different kinds of ways. I literally wrote almost like a movie script you know, with hyperlinks, you know, embedded in text to tell where to go if the user presses this and that. And that works when you have a 64K machine and, you know, your graphics are, you know, mostly static. Um, I think somewhere in the middle and, uh, of that, they introduced two-part animation. That was a big thing. Oh, we can do two-part animation now. We have, we have room. We have space, which means my aunt antenna could go like that and then that. <laughs> Two parts, right. yeah. move different ways, HB, and that big, yeah. yeah, big breakthrough for the graphics, you know, in this in this game. So really, like I said, a very um, interesting time to be a writer because it was a golden era to be a writer for video games. Um, there was no training, no degrees in that. It was wild west. It was wide open. Yeah. So did did your uh, method for creating them change over time, or did you stick to your the thing that you just described with making a kind of a hyperlinked outline? Well, the industry changed drastically, and I mean dramatically. Um, the last of the floppy disks, and when the when the graphics came in in the CD-ROM era, I did a lot of CD-ROM work for Microsoft and uh, Edmark and IBM and um, Scholastic, um, uh, Magic School Bus, and things like that. Very, very much more of a team approach, mm-hmm. and very much more led by art and design, interactive design, so that you, you know, the writing almost came later. Writing almost came as text filler in some ways in some of those games. And uh, the visuals and the interactives became really the storytelling engines um, in, in the CD-ROM era. And, and for good reason. I mean, really, it's, it's video. They're video games. It really is a visual medium. And also, is this, the strength of the medium is interactive. The strength of the medium is that dialogue with the user. And that really needs to be nailed, um, I think, uh, Primo, first, you have to define your character and define your relationship with your user first before you write anything. For, and, and scripting has, is, is still changing. It's still morphing and, and evolving, video game scripting, um, I think, in a lot of different ways. The last couple of um, projects I've worked on um, you know, have, have all been different. The writing, the writing process has been really, really different. I'm on a, what's more of a digital novel right now. Um, more more story than game. There, there's interactives, but <clears throat> I'm actually the narrative designer, and there's a separate lead writer who's just doing text, and then there's a coder artist who's basically scripting in game. You know, so you want to go look in the game, you want to be in the game, and say what's going to happen here. Do we need any text? You know, what do we do here? So so it's gone completely in game, and it's gone very visual. There's uh, you know the, the if then conditional loops are all done visually now, so that. Mm-hmm. You know, even I can follow what's going to happen on uh, the game states as as you're writing. So that's been a huge change. That's um, that's what I'm working on right now. It's called Inanimate Alice. Awesome. So before it sounded like it was super story driven. That was, I mean, the story was everything, and you had to work around that. What kind of constraints did you have to create creativity? Creativity. What constraints did you have to work around creatively? Creatively. 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 Um, you know. 
it was it was the wild west. I'm just going to say, even for an educational product, we had curriculum, we had a topic. All these all these microzine uh, games and programs were learning. It was first there was for a school audience and a home audience, but really education came first. So the biggest constraint was a conventional one. Was it had to hit? It had to teach kids. It had to teach kids certain things, and it still had to be fun. And that's still a challenge. That's still the big challenge in educational publishing for any, in almost any medium. So I think that was it. The second, the technical challenge really was the memory. Really was the computer memory, really restrictive. And as a writer, you want to expand and do this and, and have this happen and do you know go over here, and really in a very compact way, you had to think about graphics economically. So. Uh, one of the programs I did, one of the programs I wrote, twisted my brain around this, was called Safari, where because the graphics were so limited, I set the whole thing in one place. So you're in one Safari location, but you play as six different animals. So even though you, you go into the setting six different times, you can play the game six different times, if you're a different animal, you're going to have different experiences and different reactions. You're either a predator or a prey, you know, you have to find certain food, there's going to be a certain adventure, but the graphics stayed static essentially and they you know it allowed a lot you know a lot more of other things that to happen in that so that you had a lot more room in the in the in the, in the code to um to do other things by keeping the graphics simple um so that was one solution um wouldn't have to do that these days i mean these days you could take each animal on you know infinite procedurally generated <laughs> worlds of adventure and you know endless endless safari if you wanted to and so you know that was definitely a constraint was um during the 80s i think by the 90s that loosened up so you did uh, Antcatraz, you did Safari. What other games did you do for Microzine? I did um, Quest for the Pole, which was a lot of fun. Now, this was interesting because Quest for the Pole was a non- based on nonfiction, based on a true story, the Franklin Expedition in the Arctic. And so I did a lot of research and did a lot of kind of uh, um, fact-checking on this, but it's still a branching adventure story. It's still a survival story. You know, do this, you die. Do this, you don't. Uh, it's, you know, um, pretty classic branching text adventure. And because it was based on a true story and I wasn't making stuff up, I mean, the endings were, were you know, essentially real. You learned a lot about sled dogs and things like that. It was just um, kind of a departure because Ancatraz was similar in the way that you were learning about ants and it was fact-based, but the adventure itself was was really science fiction because you're not really an ant. You're not really trapped inside of an anthill, whereas uh, Quest for the Pole was um, pretty pretty good, uh, straightforward adventure. Mm-hmm. Oh, else, I, yeah, I, yeah, that's right. I, I almost forgot. I did the Balloonatics, which um, was sort of a uh, Jules Verne, you know, 80 days around uh, in the balloon, but it was a language arts adventure, and so you're just going in this, uh, in this balloon to these different locations and, and with a learning game embedded in it. So, kind of a, you know the text was really the whole adventure was just a structure to get you to practice your grammar and your language and it's for younger children so microzine junior the junior version i'm looking at now is from six ages six to eight um and the, and the older version was was nine and up so did you ever get pushback from editors or saying this this is <laughs> needs to be more educational or this isn't it's, it's super educational but it's not fun or you know how'd you find that balance then did you have to Argue you know, people about it. Well, that would be Amy, <laughs> one of my, my favorite editors on the planet. <clears throat> no, she was great to work, really, really great to work with. And she and Scholastic is one of the biggest educational publishers in the world, and so they're able to attract a lot of really top-level, you know, skilled people at doing that. That's what they do. They understand the audience. They understand the kids. And Amy, in particular, was really, really uh, uh, 
good about letting me shape the story. Um, with Ancatraz, with the first one I wrote in particular, you know, she, I just had a topic. She just gave me the topic. And I remember sitting there, well, you want to be inside the anthill, but then what happens? And I remember completely inventing every little chamber that you went to, every little uh, section that you went to, all the choices that you made. And as long as it, the science was solid, as long as the ants acted the way they were supposed to, in the sense of, you know, scientifically, if they were this kind of ant, they were going to behave this way, it was okay that they talked. You know, <laughs> even those with the science can get talking ants. So there was some discussion about that. You know, there's scientists who rebel a little bit about anthropomorphizing, but it's an adventure game. It's an adventure story, and the fun really came from the personalities of the ants. I had Arnolda, the soldier. You know, was really strong from Arnold Schwarzenegger. I had, you know, I just had some really corny stuff in there that they, they left in there. <laughs> it's great. It was a lot of fun. Did you get any feedback from students and teachers? You know, I don't remember getting a lot. Um, I wasn't on that end of it. You know, Amy would know for sure because I know they did a lot of testing. And they uh, certainly the marketing people would tell you exactly, you know, exactly what that is. But I really, I, as I think I mentioned to you um, a couple of years ago, somebody contacted me who was a Microzine fan, and the Microzine kids are grown up now. Anybody who had you know had this program or remembers it, you know, this was thirty years ago, right? Am I right? Almost thirty years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, they're now parents, right? So, you know, some of these pro- programs and games were the things that they remember doing as kids. And, and there's a sweet spot, I think, when, when you're 8 to about 12, the things that you do at that age become magical. And when you become an adult, that's what you look back to. You know, like that's what trading baseball cards or whether it's collecting figurines or, you know, Beanie Babies or whatever it was you did from 8 to 12 in that sweet spot um, I think you, you you end up with a fondness and a nostalgia for that that I think is really sweet and does come back to me every once in a while on Twitter. Somebody contacted me, had found Ancatraz and said, oh, my gosh, you're the Ancatraz lady. And, you know, the guy's, again, in his 30s or 40s, they're, you know, somewhere up there. Um, and it's kind of fun. It's really it's really a fun part of being having stuff out there, even if it's not, you know, uh, on floppy disk and not streaming. Right. <laughs> Did you play Microzine? Did this was something that you remember? Um, I had seen it, but I was an Atari kid, and my 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 school had TRS eighties for some reason, not apples like every other school in the world. So I'm, I'm cer- I was certainly aware of it, and I but no, I I wasn't. I somehow missed it. But okay, so I just went go to this um I go to this annual conference of Apple II users, and uh, it's called Kansas Fest, and this year seventy people were there um, who were people really into the Apple II and people talk about Microzine you know it's like one of those you can be walking through the hallways and people yep. just talking about or showing off or you know t- talking about twist of plots and things so um, I think there's so many people who, who remember who remember it and use the magazine and, and enjoy the, the twist of plots so I got this piqued my interest because I saw there was an Atari version, and then Amy said they published one Atari edition, and then they oh. decided to go straight Apple. So, okay. so um, so that's where you heard about it. Well, that's an, I didn't know about the Apple II convention. That's interesting. I'm going to check that, check that out. It's called can... Kansas Fest, and uh, okay. it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to check that out because it's kind of it's a trip down memory lane for me. I mean, it was, I you know when we were creating these things, we had no idea at the time how how this whole industry would take off. You know, the, the promise was there, and you certainly you saw computers were going to take over. No, I don't think anybody would have disputed that you know, when the PCs first came on the scene. But it's, it's now bigger than movies. The video game industry is now bigger than movies. And it's, just, it's one of the mainstream medium 
methods now for communication and storytelling. And to see the innovation over the last 30 years has just been unbelievable for me. I mean, my career essentially spans that. I mean, 1982 up till now, you know, was that's it. That's the, that's the tech innovation era. Um, for this kind of thing. So yeah. that's just, you know, keeping up with it's been a little tough. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was faster now than it did then, than it was fast then. Um, so what other magazines, uh, computer magazines, did you did you work on? Did we talk about them all? I, I just did the two. I started, started my career in those two magazines. I worked there for four years, and mm-hmm. then I freelanced. Then I went freelance and worked for all the other Scholastic magazines, which were classroom magazines, and I worked for the software division. I worked for the, a little bit for the television division there. So basically my career is more of a writer, and the computer thing was, um, I'm not going to say foisted on me because I loved it. Um, nobody wanted to do it. You know, If you graduate with an English degree, and they say, oh, you're going to work in a computer magazine. That's a really tough fit, especially back then when nobody was using computers regularly. They were all new and different. And so I think I kind of fell into that a little bit, and a little bit luckily so, because, it was, like I said, it was a very golden era. And now you pretty much have to be a tech head to get a job on a, any kind of computer magazine, and, and I certainly wasn't at the time. Um, but um, So the computer thing, really, I ended up to, uh, editing a science magazine because they thought, well, you know computers, you must know science. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I can figure out computers. I can figure out science, right? And um, that launched a whole science writing career. So I've done a lot of science books. And I edited a math magazine, same reason. Oh, you've done computers. You know, you know, why don't you edit our math magazine? I'm like, okay, I did a few issues of that. And so it, I ended up in these STEM fields kind of walking backwards. You know, they kind of just kept pulling me. <laughs> <laughs> pulling me into these into these um, topics, which I, you know, again, I ended up, I made a really good career in science writing. I love science now. I didn't when I first started out, and I really, really love science. And um, so that ended up being probably the most thing I've written about is science. And, and now, like I said, today I'm back to fiction. So the back in my, back into my sweet spot, which was my literature major, <laughs> finally back to fiction. Nice. So this will be listened to by dozens or perhaps hundreds of people who used Microzine and played your Twisted Plot games. You can send them a message right now. What would you say to them? Oh, I would say thank you. <laughs> I would say, and I would love to hear your memories because it's been so long. I mean, I, and like you said, I really didn't get a lot of f- direct feedback. And I, I, I really would also like to know what people are playing now, you know, where that led to. You know, all those things that we create, a lot of the things that we were pioneering in kind of in the very early 80s, uh, probably up to 88, 89, I see now iterated out there in different forms, like grow your plants and take care of them. We had a we had a program like that. We had a game like that at Scholastic. And now it's like Farmville, right? So yes. I, I'm really, really curious about that, about the evolution. So if people are Microzine fans and something in there, they, they, they're, still, they're still on that same track that set them on some kind of a beloved, you know, uh, kind of programming or game that they love, I would love to hear that, um, especially still being in the industry, you know, what, what resonates, what works. Great. Is there anything I haven't asked you yet that I should have? Um, gosh, I can't think of anything. Um, I, I think, uh, too, if you get a chance to talk to some of the other writers, um, I, I just want to say that uh, Amy, uh, I can't speak highly enough of Amy because she really was and is my favorite editor on the planet for pioneering a lot of this, um, worked with a lot of talent. Like, you know, Scholastic can, can draw some talent, and some of the other writers are super, super uh, proud and, and, and a little intimidated to be on the same playing with them at the time. I was in my 20s, and uh, they brought in some heavy hitters. They brought in some authors and some people who had to adjust to the medium. You know, really, really, uh, I, I can remember uh, reading a, a piece about William Faulkner trying to write a screenplay, and, and what a disaster, because <laughs> it was like, you to a little tiny, you know, dialogue and sentences, and it really is a different way of thinking about story, 
And uh, I think that was an interesting challenge, an interesting puzzle. And I, I never look back. I, that's my career. And that's the, that's the one, number one thing I like to do is interactive writing. And um, other people, it was, you know, it went back to novels and, you know, I, I get the text and I want, you know, immersion in a story. So that would be an interesting conversation to see where, where the other writers ended up. You know, if they stuck with it or went back, you know, to other media, you know, what they did. I have what I need. Thank you so much. All right. Good to talk to you, Kevin. Thank you. All right. So thank you again, Kevin. Those were uh, wonderful. I assume we haven't actually heard them yet. We're waiting for him to, a <laughs> little uh, breaking the fourth wall here, but we're, we're waiting for him to send us the audio as we record this. So um, hopefully it isn't just the microzine folks going, God, those Apple guys really suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, very, very professional of us there. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they were great because Kevin's a great, uh, great interviewer. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's roll into some news, shall we? <laughs> it's, uh, can't be worse than this. <laughs> it may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. So speaking of uh, interviews that we didn't do, but we're going to talk about anyway, uh, Chris Chris Torrance over on uh, YouTube, he uh, has been doing a bang up job there. He's got a podcast, uh, that, that's not the right word, I don't know, YouTube channel, tube, tube vlog, tubecast, <laughs> I don't know, those things have a name that, that I don't know because I'm... I'm Cast pod. Yeah, I'm not a millennial, so I don't know what you call <laughs> those things. But uh, he's uh, he's been doing everything from uh, hardware demos to software uh, uh, demonstrations. Uh, and lately, uh, recently rather, he's got a... Uh, Really great interview with uh, Doug Carlston of Broderbund fame, and uh, it's really, really a great watch. I recommend it. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff there, and I, I know that Jimmy Marr has also done a lot of interviewing of Doug uh, for his um, his uh, Digital Antiquarian blog that we highly, highly recommend over at the feelfree.net. We'll have the uh, link in the show notes, of course, and um, we also appreciate that Doug, um, or that, that, that Chris hooked us up with, with Doug for a possible interview in the future. Um, I think we'll let that one percolate for a little while because Chris and, and uh, uh, Jimmy have done such a wonderful job of covering everything. I don't know, one, if there's anything left that needs to be talked about. And two, it's, you know, three in a row like that is uh, maybe it's good to let it wait for a while. <laughs> yeah, maybe listeners want to let us know at uh, feedback at open-apple.net if uh, you want us to interview Doug uh, here on the show right now or wait a little bit or uh, yeah, give us your feedback. Yep. All right, moving along, we've got some uh, kind of a... a, a, a Surge is a, is a weird word, but surge of uh, <laughs> cool new 2GS hardware. And uh, what a pun! Yeah. Oh yeah, I see. What, oh yeah, I see what I did there, and I didn't even realize it. Uh, so the first thing that we've got is uh, the four-play joystick card. Now this is really cool. Uh, this is from Lukazi, who is based out of Australia, that we've talked about here quite a bit on the show in the past. He's got a really cool blog where he does Apple II hacking projects, and uh, he's got a legit uh, product now called uh, the four-play. And it allows you to connect four game controllers to your 2GS. And what's cool about this is the range of controllers it supports. Uh, everything from the classic Atari joysticks to all sorts of Amiga and Commodore and various other sorts of things. Uh, obviously, anything that was you know Atari joystick compatible, like the C64 was, but also some really some actually kind of weird stuff. Uh, he's talking about also possibly uh, Sega Genesis controller compatibility and uh, and lots of stuff. Uh, and if that's not enough, usually with a gadget like this, you're like, well, that's neat, but you know, there's no software that supports it. Well, guess what? Uh, Kaboom, the uh, recent uh, release from Antoine Vigneault, has been upgraded to support the 4Play, which is uh, 
certainly the best possible way to play this game. So, you know, being, being a four player, uh, four player game, cram, cramming people around your 2GS keyboard is definitely not the way to go, as the Atari folks like to point out. So, uh, this, uh, this really looks like a fun way to play it. Yeah, I'm excited to to check this out now. Uh, Alex Lacazzi, of course, he's he's come to Kansas Fest at least once. He had that uh, amazing turtle robot that he had plugged in, and did a uh, he did a joystick, uh, an Atari joystick to Apple II thing. Uh, it was like a prototype that he wired up really quickly, actually, just there at Kansas Fest. So, uh, which I think sort of applies to our next item, doesn't it? Or no, that was just what we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're really firing, our, firing on all cylinders this morning. Mm, yeah. uh, it's It's been a strange weekend, folks. Uh, but yeah, well, they both start with fours, so the uh, confusion is understandable. <laughs> the next product is from, I think, a newcomer to the hardware scene on the Apple II, someone called Manila Gear. I can't find any other uh, reference to them, uh, so this might be their first product. Uh, but uh, it's the Forsonic Quadraphonic Sound Card. Now, the... Uh, the 2GS sound chip, the Ansonic, as we all know, is quite a, a masterpiece, uh, and it has some rather strange uh, hidden properties that a lot of people don't know about, one of which is uh, most people know the 2GS had mono output but was capable of stereo with a fairly simple uh, uh, add-on card such as uh, the, the Sonic Blaster. Uh, but actually, the uh, Ensonic had eight channels. Uh, that's not to be confused with oscillators, of which it had 32, and voices, of which it had 16, typically, depending how you combine the oscillators. Uh, but it also was capable of eight separate channels. Uh, maddeningly, I have no idea why they would have engineered it to that degree, but it was capable of, mm-hmm. of eight channel surround sound. So, uh, which, of course, never got used. But this card uh, allows you to unlock four channels, uh, quadraphonic, hence the name. Uh, and in fact, apparently, according to the documentation, can be combined with a second card to get all eight channels, uh, which is fairly astonishing. I don't know uh, what you would do with that, but, uh, uh, and, well, I guess speaking of what you would do with that, once again, uh, Kaboom has been modified to support this thing. So uh, it must be quite the uh, audio-visual feast uh, with four joysticks and quadraphonic sound on the 2GS, playing what's uh, already a really terrific game. Uh, and possibly my favorite or most interesting feature of this thing is apparently it can be configured to run without using a slot. Now, I haven't been able to find much more for that on uh, details for that, but uh, uh, this thing is, I think, shipping soon. Is that right, Mike? It's not quite available yet? Yeah, it was uh, demoed actually at, at WazFest down in uh, Down Under, and uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but no, it's not available for general purpose yet. Okay, cool. General so, purchase yet. <laughs> we'll have a link uh, in the show notes to uh, Manila Gear's site where there's uh, some photos of the prototype uh, and other cool information about it. So yeah, I'm really curious to see how it works uh, without using a slot. That's really cool. Yeah, so so uh, as I mentioned, uh, these two cards were uh, demoed down at WazFest 3, and uh you know, it's easy, especially from an unknown company and, you know, from no offense to our, any Filipino listeners we might have, but, you know, you hear from some new product from uh, somebody you've never heard of in the Philippines and eh, maybe that's real. Maybe that's going to be another vaporware product, but fortunately this thing appears to be very real. So yeah, looking forward to, to playing with both of these actually. Yeah. And we'll have a link to uh, the demo of it at uh, WASFest as well. So very cool stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, all right. Uh, the next thing, uh, something I came across on Hackaday, uh, VCF East uh, was run recently, as many of our listeners no doubt know. In fact, some of you were probably there. And they have uh, something they call the Hackathon, which is much like the Hackfest at KFest. 
And what was cool about this is, uh, so the part of part of Hackathon this year is they had set up a bunch of uh, Commodore 64s, boo, and uh, Apple IIs, yay. And they had set them all up with just AppleSoft Basic. And they challenged people to come and just sit down and do something cool with, uh, in Basic. And it was mostly people who, you know, maybe they'd written some Basic 30 years ago or whatever, but hadn't since. And so they just had, you know, the manuals there and they told people to just uh, go nuts and see what you can write in whatever, an hour or two hours or whatever. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, really cool pictures uh, over on Hackaday of people banging away on uh, AppleSoft Basic for the first time in probably 30 years and trying to, to make something cool out of it. Uh, so kind of like a 10-line basic challenge or something like that, but uh, but in real time. Uh, that was something that we used to do a lot of back in the day, actually. I cut my teeth uh, on programming competitions uh, back in junior high and high school. They had a this exact kind of format where you had a bunch of challenges you had to solve and a time limit, and there was judges making sure you weren't cheating with extra books or whatever. Uh, so this brings back lots of memories for me. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of doing these little contests, you know, uh, on-site only, you know, just at the convention. Um, you know, it starts when you get there, it's done before you leave, and it really, I think, fosters a sense of community and competition and and uh, creativity, uh, you know, inevitably, invariably, at least at Kansas Fest, we always get some some great products as as a, a result of the Hackfest. Even the stuff that doesn't get finished and isn't judged usually ends up leading to something that gets released at some point. So good on you, VCF. Yeah, and what I like about that format is it kind of levels the playing field and makes it more fun for everybody because if you've got a like an offline competition where it's like, okay, you know, bring something to the show that you worked on for the past year and we'll judge that. Well, you know, there's always going to be someone who has more free time than you and can dedicate, you know, 50 hours a week to it. Meanwhile, you've got a job and kids or whatever, so you can't do that. Uh, whereas this is like, okay, we're all just here for an hour or two hours and uh, we're starting from the same place and let's just see what happens. So yeah, I think that's really cool. And yeah, especially with AppleSoft Basic where it's such a low barrier to entry and it's fun to it's fun and easy to get something on the screen. Sure. All right. Speaking of mainstream blogs that don't usually run Apple II stuff. Wow, that segue was awful. Uh, over on uh, Boing Boing, they had a quick uh, rundown. <laughs> uh, they did kind of a, a tribute to uh, 1980s video game box art. Uh, of course, one of the defining characteristics of early video games was that, well, A, they had boxes, which games no longer do, and uh, B, the actual game graphics were usually not good enough to show on the box. So they didn't want to, they didn't want you to necessarily see what the game actually looked like. So they had to show you something that would stoke your imagination instead. And uh, they did that often with watercolor or oil paintings or other types of illustration on the fronts of the box. And some of it was really quite uh, amazing and some of it was really quite terrible. And uh, most of it was somewhere in the middle. Uh, lots of naked ladies in, you know, bronze Ooh. bikinis and things. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the reason I mention it here on the show is that uh, this sort of collection of 1980s box art is actually mostly serious software, uh, who of course is, was an amazing publisher of Apple II stuff. Uh, they did a, really, a lot of really great stuff. And uh, uh, they were known for really interesting box art. Uh, so there's lots of fantastic shots of serious uh, software's box art, which, you know, if you're like me, most of which you'd never seen because you pirated all those games. <laughs> so you never saw the, bo the, the boxes for them. Uh, but, 
Yeah, I have to say, uh, Sirius presents Plasmania. We'll uh, never, uh, I'll never get that phrase out of my head. That little speech synthesis that they oh, did. Oh goodness, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, take a look if uh, if you're feeling nostalgic for uh, sometimes cheesy and sometimes awesome 1980s video game box art. Yeah, it, and and in fact, that that awesome artwork uh, wasn't just. Um, uh, restricted to game box boxes. It was also, um, you know, Byte Magazine, especially those early copies for a long time. The, the art was, was the, the cover art were, were things to be, you know, uh, had and, and I knew people would cut them out and, and frame them and put them on the walls. And Byte, in fact, I think sold a number of prints from, I forget the artist's name. He did a bunch of, he did the covers, I think for, you know, 20 more, 20 or more years. And those prints are very expensive now. Um, and recently I'd been going through some old soft talks and even Byte magazine and I'd been scanning in game ads and I've got an ac- I got access to a large format plotter at work. And so at night when nobody else is looking, I've been printing those out as posters. And, but just having, just seeing that, like you said, seeing the, the box art and being able to actually sit and appreciate it rather than walking past it in the aisle at Egghead Software because I have the pirated copy at home. Uh, it, it's really neat to be able to, to, to do that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the ads too, because uh, Chris Torrance actually in that very same interview that we mentioned earlier, uh, talks a little bit about the different types of ad artwork uh, that these companies used. And it was definitely a a defining characteristic of the company. You could sort of tell, much like today, you can tell how how serious or how big a company is by the quality of their website. Uh, You could tell how, how serious or big a company was by the quality of their artwork. And some of it is literally uh, you know, pencil drawings by, you know, the programmer. Uh, it, and that's the advertisement in a glossy magazine, uh, as opposed to other companies, which like broader bond who are early on doing, you know, full screen professional or full, full page professional uh, artwork. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny to see that, uh, that dichotomy in the same magazine. And if you follow, there's a link in the Boing Boing article that uh, actually links back to the original uh, over at worldwritable.com. There are a bunch more uh, companies covered there. There's the screenplay. Um, and let's see, what else do we have here? And oh, there's synergistic software with the Crisis Mountain mm-hmm. artwork. Hello, yeah. David. <laughs> and uh, a few other uh, really popular games at AppVenture to Atlantis. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, a lot of neat stuff to check out. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how Byte and so many of those other uh, 80s magazines stuck with uh, illustrative cover art long after, you know, Time and People and all those other mainstream magazines had all gone to photography. Uh, so it's, I, I wonder I wonder why that was. Because Apple II graphics weren't that great. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess they could have shown <laughs> photos of the hardware, but maybe that gets boring after a while. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess a lot of computing, early computing, was very much about the fantasy and the potential of what they could do for, compared to, you know, which was quite often quite different from what they actually did at the time. Uh, there was visions of internets and things, but in fact, there was crappy modems and teenage bulletin boards uh, that were all ASCII. So uh, there was some need for fantasy there, perhaps. I would think so, yes. <laughs> All right, moving along. Uh, what's uh, Ultimate Micro up there, Mike? Uh, well, we've been talking uh, about Ultimate Micro, I think, almost as much as we talk about Jason Scott on this uh, <laughs> podcast. And this time uh, they finalized their the release of the new Universal Power Supply. I think we talked about the fact that this was in, in planning and was upcoming, and they've, uh, they've actually got uh, – uh, photographs, mock-up photographs over at hucentral.com on, of, of what this kit's going to look like. And, uh, I think you can pre-order it. I don't know if they're selling it yet, but it's for, uh, it's, it's sort of interesting. It has, um, uh, some dotted lines that say things like, uh, break for Vul- Vulcan inter, uh, Vulcan inner drive so that you can, you actually 
uh, snap the the uh, PCB in the place that, that you need it for the power supply that you're building so that you, you can uh, have a power supply that's compatible with any Apple II or Apple III. Yay! <laughs> yeah, this thing is a really great idea, actually. It's, uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, it's, it's a modern power supply that's smaller than the smallest that any Apple II could need. And then it comes with this, uh, you know, PCB, this circuit board that's actually just sort of a mounting plate for it. And as you say, it has these perforations at various different lengths and you break it off as needed. So it will fit inside the existing metal box that your Apple II has. Everything from, yeah, an Apple III to a 2GS to a 2GS with a Vulcan to an early, you know, Rev Zero Apple II to, you know, the later two pluses where they change to a different, you know, brand of power supply. It's got, you know, breaking points and mounting holes for every single one of these. Uh, it's really, it's really clever. Uh, and in fact, Chris Torrance, uh, again, has a nice review of that. So uh, we can link to that in the show notes as well. Lucky bastard. Um, so yeah, you can, you can pre-order these now and it looks like they're saying that they're going to start shipping around, uh, around July 15th, which is right about Kansas Fest time. So I bet there will be a few there available to buy as well. I bet maybe if you get on the K-Fest mailing list, uh, maybe you can talk to Henry Corbis and see if he'll bring you something. Indeed. All right. Uh, well, if you can't make it to K-Fest uh, because you're over in Europe, you might make it to Apple II Festival France. Uh, looks like that's coming up in around the same time, right? Yeah, that was uh, announced uh, recently over at uh, Apple2FestivalFrance.fr. The page is in French, but uh, the basic details uh, are that uh, this is going to be happening around, uh, around early August 2016. And I imagine if you run this thing through the, the standard uh, Google Translate page, you'll, you'll get everything that you need. Cool. All right. Uh, let's see. This next item is yours, Mike. Yeah, it looks like The Atlantic has got an article on retro computing, sort of. Yeah, this, geez, you're, Quinn, you're moving faster than I can open tabs here. Let's see. <laughs> Life moves fast, Mike. You got to keep up. I think that's, <laughs> that's right. That, there's a, that was almost a line from Ferris Bueller, but not quite. Uh, almost. Uh, there's a, a photo of, it starts out with a photo of, I can't tell it, is that an actual Apple IIc or is that one of Charles Mangan's minis? <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it was shot with a tilt shift lens, I think that's why. It's, is that yeah, what that it's, is? Okay. Yeah, it's a real 2C, but it looks toy-like because of how they've shot it, yeah. Anyway, the game that they've, they've got loaded up there is Batman the Cape Crusader, which was released in 1988, and, uh, um, but the article itself is on how early computer games influenced internet culture, and it talks about the virtual play spaces, the 80s and BBSs, and all the good uh, retro stuff that we love to read and talk about here. So uh, check out the article for sure. Yeah, I like this article because it's uh, it does talk about some other non-Apple II stuff as well, but it's definitely heavy on the Apple II, and it's clearly written by someone who for realsies, grew up with the Apple II, not just someone who used it in junior high or whatever, because, uh, you know, uh, there's references to, you know, Lemonade Stand and, you know, that kind of stuff that, like, you played if you were a real, you know, real Apple II user, not just someone who played Oregon Trail uh, in between assignments. <laughs> uh, and uh, and there's, uh, yeah, some quotes from a uh, friend of the show, Lee Nooney, in there. So yeah, awesome. always nice to hear from her. And some excellent screenshots, although the screenshots are clearly taken from an emulator because there's no fringe or anything in them, but no. uh, still still nice to see. Also, uh, Buatari for having a 2600 picture in there. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, every article about old technology has to have a 2600 in there. Yeah, apparently, yes. It's like, it's like a rule. All right. Well, speaking of hardcore Apple II users, uh, we got a we got a brutal deluxe. Did a little tribute to the French United Crackers clan. Uh, this article is kind of a fun read. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll let you guys figure out what the acronym is there. But uh, <laughs> basically, this was a, a, a cracking group that uh, was uh, active in France in the 80s. And they, uh, they've, uh, the article has released a, a num- released the, the names of the members as in their handles and the cracks. And then the cracks include, it looks like they t- all took place between 88 and 90. Uh, Bubble Ghost, Chase, Chess Master 2100, Pirates, Strip Poker 2, Alien Mind, Arkanoid 2 with the fixed version. And tunnels of Armageddon, and they've got pictures of all the crack screens there, and you can download a uh, a nice little disk image that has all the software and all their crack screens. So pretty awesome. Yeah, I was just glad to see Alien Mind on there. Honestly, it's by far my favorite two chess game. That game is just absolutely amazing. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a really fun fun read. Both both because I'm sure that a lot of people have you've probably seen these crack screens if you used a 2GS at all. You might not have realized who the people were that were behind those screens. And it's also cool to see he talks about uh, how you know this group became Miami Software, uh, producing you know when they made a run at producing commercial software like Sensei, which some of us of course know we've talked about on the show before. Uh, so it's kind of cool. You don't, you know, I think as a user at the time, not sort of seeing the machinations of all these different groups and people, uh, you might not have realized that, oh, these are the same people, you know, those guys that put <laughs> dirty pictures in front of, on crack screens for Alien Mind were the same people that, uh, <laughs> that produced Sensei. Uh, so that's, that's kind of neat to see. And, uh, the other thing I like about this article is that it is sort of a window into, uh, the culture that some of these cracking groups had, you know, and, we sh- I think we should acknowledge that, that uh, at the same time, we can respect and admire the programming chops, but uh, we have to recognize that there was also some pretty, <laughs> pretty terrible cultural things going on there. You know, they, uh, there's, they talk about the history of uh, their port of Teenage Queen to the 2GS, which is a strip poker game for underage girls. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think we have to say much <laughs> more about that, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I think we should... Uh, we need to be aware of of the cultural impact or cultural legacy that some of these cracking groups, I think, set up for for technology uh, later on. Indeed. Uh, but uh, yeah, awesome programming that was happening. No, no doubt about that. Yeah. Hey, Quinn, are you a fan of mobile gaming? I am, in fact. I work in that very field. Well, so then obviously you've heard of Structress, and even if you're not a mobile gamer, if you've been to Kansas Fest in the past couple of years, you've heard of Structress. Uh, this. Um, this is sort of the, the game tournament that happens throughout the week and culminates, I think, Friday or Saturday night. Uh, it's, this is an addicting little game that was put together by Kansas Fest's own Martin Hay. Um, and the, the gaming contest itself actually stretches back a number of years. They used to play a game called Dualtris and that sort of faded out for a little while. And I think, uh, if I recall correctly, Martin wanted to bring something back. And, uh, so he's gotten to, and so he, created this for the uh, actual Apple IIs. You would take turns on your Apple IIc or whatever. Uh, and recently, he got together with Bill Martins and Brian Weiser, friends of the show, uh, over at Call Apple, and they put together an iOS version. Uh, they announced it, I think. I don't know if they actually made an official announcement. I know some of the um, news blogs and podcasts got an email saying it was coming out, but then there were some bugs that they had to correct. Well, the final version is now released. It's on the uh, Apple... Um, it's on the... Um, the store and uh it's <laughs> yeah yeah i know I'm the ios app store yeah there you go <laughs> ios app store uh for a dollar 99 and it's definitely worth playing yeah this thing is really fun it's got the same uh look as the original uh you know it's got the low res graphics with the four lines of text at the bottom uh in, in the correct apple II font and everything so it looks very much like an apple II game but uh it doesn't have all the obviously the fringe and the blur and everything so it's uh you know it's kind of nice it's uh, it's cool it looks like a fun download Absolutely. 
And uh, our final news uh, piece today is uh, more from Ultimate Micro. They've released a new scalable oscillator for your Transwarp GS or your Zip GSX. Uh, if you recall, I think last year when they when they released uh, or when they announced that they had made these clones, they also um, announced that they had made the scalable oscillator, which is really awesome because it allows you to set the speed that your Transwarp or your Zip GSX uh, is going to run at, and you don't have to go and swap a new oscillator every time you want to step it down, you know, a tenth of a megahertz or something like that, or up one. Um, this new version uh, has now been custom tailored to fit each board better. It uses a better grade clock IC, which provides a cleaner signal. And um, although with this better signal came uh, complexity of design, the item comes now with a power LED letting you know that it's working and a resettable fuse on the plus five uh, power line to protect the board from any damage related to shorts. So awesome. Fine work going on over there at Ultimate Micro. Yeah. Does anyone ever call you Ultimate Mike? I feel like I feel like they should. I'm afraid not. No, usually it's inferior Mike, half Mike, things oh. like that. <laughs> not just just a Mike. No, no, I'm afraid not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> There's all kinds of puns just waiting to happen there. I'm sure. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, all right. Well, that's our news. Uh, let's do a little bit of uh, feedback, shall we? Yeah, sounds good. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. First thing I've got uh, is from David Schroeder, who, of course, we spoke to on the show a couple of months ago. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, yeah, and of course, we referenced him earlier in this show, in fact. General awesome human being David Schroeder. He uh, wrote in to let us know that... Uh, Dino Egg's rebirth has gotten the Steam green light. Uh, when we when we interviewed them uh, a couple of months ago, they were working towards that, but had not yet achieved it. So they got the green light on Steam uh, for Dino Egg's rebirth, and they've set a release date of June 9th, which uh, should be uh, plenty of time for you to hear this uh, show when it goes up. So uh, get on over to Steam and pick up Steam. Re- uh, sorry, pick up Dino Egg's rebirth. You yeah, can't also buy the, you can't buy the whole Steam store. Well, I guess you could yeah, if you were really you rich. But. Could that might be a little spendy? Yeah, a lot of hard drive space too. Uh, he also points out that it's very fitting that uh, it should come out in 2016 because it is the 33rd anniversary of the original Dino X, wow. which is kind of awesome and yeah, it makes definitely. me feel old. <laughs> Uh, so Dino Eggs uh, Rebirth will support Steam Achievements, Steam Cloud Saves, Steam Leaderboards, and, uh, oh, this is cool. He's got a two-person cooperative multiplayer, wow. uh, as, as well as a wide range of competitive multiplayer games that it always did have. Uh, he's, they've added more languages. So they now support uh, Italian and Japanese, uh, French, Spanish, German, and Dutch. So lots of localizations there. Mm-hmm. And uh, more graphic options to get closer to the original uh, Apple version if you want that look. Uh, so, available for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. So, uh, run to walk to Steam and pick that up. Thank you, David. Yeah. Uh, next item I've got is from uh, frequent writer and fan of the show, Herb. And he writes in to say, first, thanks, Mike, for taking Calgary's snow this year. <laughs> we referenced the crazy <laughs> blizzard you had. Uh, to follow up a bit on RCR number five uh, host topic, that was uh, what to do with your collections when you get old and die and nobody else wants them. 
Uh, I've been noticing that the typical high-valued Apple II-related peripherals have been on the decline late recently. I'm speculating that the deep-pocketed collectors have pretty much acquired their desired items, whether they be Transwarp GS, Zip GS, 3.5 drive controllers, etc. The final builds are less than half of what I've seen a year and a half ago. It seems it's too late to cash in on the peak values. I think we've gone past the peak of the crazy prices, and as more as more of us age and leave this plane, the demand will continue to drop. It looks like we're in a buyer's market, so to speak. And uh, let's see, oh, he says about uh, Reactive Micro's 3.5 drive controller. I don't think the AEHD Plus drive required the controller to achieve 1.6 megabytes. Uh, in fact, I think you mentioned that on the show, Mike, that they just had mm-hmm. a custom driver. And uh, for those who want, uh, this is interesting, for those who want a 1.44 meg capacity and can't find a super drive, there are plenty of used internal Mac drives that can be swapped out into the 800K enclosure. And it will operate as an 800K drive without the controller or a 1.44 drive with it. So that's a really cool bit of uh, insider knowledge. I did not realize you could take an HD Mac drive and drop it into uh, a 2GS drive enclosure and use it with the 3.5 drive controller. That's very cool stuff. Uh, so what do you think about that, Mike? Do you think prices are dropping on the uh, unobtainium things on eBay? Well, it's been a while since I've had to look because like he, he I think, correctly mentions a lot of people who are collecting have the stuff that they need, you know, and probably have backups for when things break and extra parts and stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know if things are... Uh, Beyond their peak value, because uh, you know sometimes you log in and you can find a, a beat up Apple II Plus for twenty five bucks, and sometimes the cheapest beat up Apple II Plus is well over a hundred dollars. I think that's that may just be more of a uh, an eBay thing, but the I th- you know yeah there are plenty of hidden deals and Craigslist stuff and things like that out there to be found, but eBay is still the largest market for this stuff, so you know I, I don't know that uh, how. How accurate is to say, well, that's just a weird eBay thing when they're the biggest market. But, yeah. uh, yeah, prices right now seem to be a little bit down. So, um, and who knows when or if they'll go back up again. So, you know, if you're looking for something, now might be the time. The other thing that, that we had talked about, uh, last time was that, you know, as a specific example, the, all of these SD media cards for the Apple II and, uh, and, and even the Apple III, uh, have replaced a lot of the need for, you know, floppy disk media and the hardware that you need to access that. Yeah. And the media itself is dying too, which, you know, if, if you can't get the media, that certainly hurts the value of the, of the drives. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, the, the cards and, and things are still out there and they're still scarce, but you know, I mean, do you really need a, do you, I mean, and it's great to have a super drive controller if, if you're looking for like, look what I got, but do you really need one these days? I, I think the answer is almost kind of no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Herb's thesis is probably correct that, uh, you know, there's a sweet spot of those of us of a certain age who are nostalgic for this stuff and really want it. But, uh, you know, the, as we age out, uh, you know, the, let's not kid ourselves that there's some new generation that's going to come on and come along and find this stuff as interesting <laughs> no. as we do. Uh, yeah. So. I, I'm sure that the worldwide market for Abacus collection is, is pretty small <laughs> at this point. You know, even the hobbyists yeah. have mostly gone on to other things. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then again, this brings up the kind of collection that you want. Are you the kind of person who wants an Apple 2GS with only original parts in it? You know, or do you mm-hmm. want, are you okay with having one of these replacement power supplies from Reactive Micro? And, or do you want, you know, are you okay with having the, the internal, um, SD, uh, mass media controller in there as long as you can put, hang off the three and a half inch floppy drives on the outside so it looks right? You know, who knows? 
Yeah, I wonder if there's an analogy to be drawn from uh, uh, from arcade collecting. You know, that's uh, another hobby that I'm sure we have a lot of overlap in our audience. And, uh, you know, it used to be the high demand items were the 80s games, you know, the Ms. Pac-Mans and so on. And uh, nowadays, the that market has kind of gone quite soft. And the, uh, the, the prices are shooting up on the 90s games, you know, the sex, sort of second generation of arcades, uh, the Brawlers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Simpsons and so on. So I wonder if there's going to be something similar happening in retro computing where, uh, you know, there will be a, a rise in prices for, I don't know, early PC stuff or I don't know why, because that stuff was all commodity kind of garbage at the time. It wasn't anything particularly special, but, um, you know, uh, who, who knows, or maybe early, early smartphones and maybe there'd be some retro <laughs> rejuvenation of the first iPhone in five years or 10 years. Who knows? You think there'll be a bubble on unopened copies of Windows 95 OSR2 and uh, <laughs> and uh, the Plus Pack and things like that? Yeah, it's hard to imagine people being nostalgic for commodity PC hardware, but <laughs> you know, you never you never know. There's definitely nostalgia for DOS games, so maybe it's really it's really I think what you grew up with because you know the mainframe mm-hmm. guys look at us like, why do you want that junk? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Our stuff was just toys to them, and uh, yeah, and five years after the Apple II, it was all garbage. So it was only you know twenty years later that suddenly it was <laughs> it was special again. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. Um, I know Sean Fahey over at A2Central.com was at one point on a quest to build an entirely um, um, applied engineering uh, peripherals Apple II, and uh, <laughs> I, it was interesting that he was actually having trouble finding some of some of the more um, esoteric hardware that they put out in their in their final years. But uh, I know that that was the thing that he was doing. I don't know if he ever finished that. So uh, Sean, write in, let us know what uh, what happened there. Yeah, and you know, I think every, you know every generation has nostalgia for whatever they grew up with, and no one we're not special in that way. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, Rob Flack O'Hara has talked about in his podcast. He's recently in one of his many podcasts. He's put together uh, a 486 uh, PC for uh, DOS gaming, and uh, you know, it's again commodity hardware, nothing special. But uh, you know, to him, that was nostalgic. So. Uh, it's not for us to say. That's but, right. Uh, enjoy your Apple stuff while you've got it, <laughs> <laughs> and while you're on the planet to enjoy it. <laughs> That's right. All right, moving right along, we got an email from listener Jerry who writes in to say, uh, hey, "Hello, Quinn and Mike. I love your podcast. Well, thank you very much. You should note you have at least three listeners. Woo. Excellent. Uh, first thing, forget the naysayers. Make the show as long or short as you want. Why? Thank you. I prefer the longer ones, but if they're shorter, I'm happy that they are there for me to listen to. I appreciate that." Uh, also, I've heard you mention the scarcity of DB19 connectors a number of times. I don't remember when, but just a few years ago, within the last five, I bought these to go with my Apple II SmartPort VHD by Cedric Peltier, who I understand has sort of disappeared. Anyhow, a quick web search, and this outfit looks like it still sells them, and he links to a, uh, a company called HelloCables.com. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to mention this cause this is one of those things where it really, really, really looks like they're for sale. Uh, but if you click through, uh, and if you try to actually order them, you find that they aren't, uh, either you get linked to some other site that where they're out of stock or, uh, oftentimes these sort of sketchy looking connector component companies are just portals for they're kind of scraping uh this the stock of other companies uh you know warehouses and so on and it's kind of a b2b sort of situation and uh you know they'll take your order but then they route the order through to some other company or warehouse that claims to have the item and then when that happens it turns out the other company's website or their database wasn't up to date and they don't actually don't have the item and so you find out you know your order gets rejected so uh that's what tends to happen um 
again, uh, big mess of wires. Steve Chamberlain has written about this a lot where uh, it looks like you can buy these things all over the internet, but when you actually try to, uh, they, they don't exist. So, uh, but thanks for uh, writing in to tell us about that. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, in fact, on that subject, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but Steve Chamberlain has actually decided to make a run of these connectors himself. Uh, obviously, the minimum order is huge, and he's going to end up with more of them than he can ever use in any lifetime. Uh, but uh, he decided it's the only way to, to, to get them, and he still needs them for his uh, floppy emus and other devices. So uh, if you uh, want any of these connectors, I'm sure Steve would be thrilled <laughs> to sell you some. For only a, a minimum markup. <laughs> yeah, honestly, he'd probably sell them to you. I don't want to speak for yeah, him, but I'm he'd sure. probably sell them to you at cost just to get rid yeah. of them because I think he had to order something like 100,000 of these things or oh 10,000 or maybe it was 5,000 anyway. Wow. More than that's a lot. Yeah, more than a human could ever need uh, for, for retro hardware. Uh, all right, moving it along. Uh, listener Brian writes in to say, Hi there, love the podcast. Have been listening faithfully since episode one. Wow. Wow. That, that is dedication. Yeah. You're a brave man, sir. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, he says, enjoyed the Bill Budge episode. Is strong. <laughs> yes. He says, enjoyed the Bill Budge episode. Uh, so sorry the technicals were such a pain. Yeah, tell me about it. Mm. Uh, it makes me love the instant on Apple II even more. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, he says, I'm writing because Quinn has inspired me somewhat to dabble more with electronics. Unfortunately, I don't have her skills. Well, my skills are an illusion, actually. I'm just really good at Googling. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm not able to do much. I was looking into a way to get my Apple IIc composite video output to be changed to green or amber to connect to my Commodore 1702. This seems like a much bigger project than I'm capable of. Uh, he says, I'm wondering if you know if such a device or product exists out there that will take the composite video and allow tweaking of the color for the old monochrome green or amber I remember. I've heard of other devices mentioned on the podcast, so I thought I'd check with the experts. All right, Brian. Well, there's a couple of things going on there. Um, so first and foremost, uh, the a composite signal is actually just a composite signal. Uh, it can be color or black and white, but how the monitor renders it is separate from that. So... You know, uh, there are you know, old monitors that are green and there are old ones that are amber, but the composite signal going into them is the same. Uh, so it'll take, whether you're feeding it a black and white or a color composite signal, it will render it as green or amber if it's a green or amber monitor. So if you've got uh, a monitor that takes a composite input, you should just connect it and it should just do what you want. Um, now that said, the Apple II, as we've talked about a lot, doesn't have quite a standard composite signal. Uh, it, uh, it's a black and white signal that relies on artifacting to generate colors. So it, a lot of monitors don't like that. But if it's a monitor of that generation, it should be fine. Uh, and now if you want to get that green or amber effect on a more modern display, uh, I would uh, definitely recommend uh, Plumman's uh, over at A2Heaven. He has the uh, Apple 2C to VGA adapter. And it's a thing that plugs into your video expansion port on the 2C. And it actually has modes for green and amber display. So you can actually get that look on a modern LCD. And I have one of those, and it's awesome. I recommend it highly. One thing that you might look into if you're looking to be able to switch colors to uh, switch from a color situation to a, quote, green situation is the these are very difficult to find and they're expensive. But if you can, the Apple Color Monitor 100 is a digital XRGB, which can also be made to do uh, analog. Uh, but... It has a switch that uh, goes from color to green uh, right there uh, in the little control panel. So if you can find one, you can do that too. Yeah, the uh, Laser 128 also had uh, a switch that would go to black and white, mm -hmm. uh, which was I think super some of the handy. Franklins did too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that was really handy if you were doing something text heavy, or uh, it was great for Geos because uh, it took, took yeah. takes out all of the color fringe that you get. It just gives you a pure black and white double high res video, which made Geos look amazing. So yep. definitely recommended for that. All right. Well, that's all the feedback I have. Did you have anything, Mike? No. Uh, well, we did get one uh, that was submitted to the website that basically said, hey, uh, run your audio through um, through Levelator, darn it. And uh, <laughs> Quinn had actually mentioned that to me as well on the previous one. I had I had uh, tried to get away from that a little bit just because it does weird things to to our um, to the drops and, and the, the music between the clips. But I think overall the effect is better. Um, and yeah, my skills just aren't that good at, uh, for when it comes to audio engineering. So <laughs> we apologize for any of that and, uh, look for, look for, uh, more of that in the future. Yeah. We appreciate everyone's uh, understanding that we are not audio engineers. Uh, yeah, the, uh, April episode went out, uh, that one was run through Levelator. So if people, uh, thought that was better, please let us know. Uh, it's not yep. always easy to see the forest for the trees in your own work. Uh, so we appreciate people's feedback on that. Indeed. All right. Well, I think that uh, wraps it up for this month. Any closing thoughts, Mike? No, no. Uh, thanks again for listening and tuning in. And of course, thank you to uh, Kevin Savitz for uh, ge- for generously donating this month's interviews. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again, Kevin Butari, and uh, yay, Kevin Savitz. Bye, everybody. Bye. been the open apple podcast subscribe to us in itunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalog of past episodes or read our blog if you like what you've heard today or even if you didn't your comments questions or ideas are always welcome send them to feedback at open-apple.net serious presents Mania. <laughs>